when I started out, I, I was at one point marketing myself somewhat actively as a consultant. And frankly, I would take any client that would that would pay me, whether it was an ideal fit or not. And uh, even if it was at a low hourly rate, if you will. And today, fast forward to today, I don't advertise myself at all as a consultant. You know, I'm not marketing myself in that way at all. And I have a handful of consulting clients and without exception, every single one of them have approached me without me advertising in any way whatsoever. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou, and boy, do we have an incredible, exciting guest lined up for you today. This gentleman is a repeat guest on the podcast. In fact, this is the third time he's been on the show, and only one other person has been on the show more than he has, and that's the one and only Mark Von Muser. And not only that... He is one of the folks who was one of the initial members of the first thought leadership course that we did in Canada back in 2016, and he was one of our best students because he took everything he learned on and used it to create a powerful thought leader positioning for himself. He is the host of one of the top-rated podcasts in the world of real estate and real estate investing called the Real Estate Espresso Podcast. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Victor Menashe. Welcome to the show, Victor. Great to be here, Nikki. Man, it's great to have you on the show, my friend. So, Victor, you know, you and I are good friends. We know each other really well, and we're going to have a fantastic conversation. But we're always putting new listeners into the family of the Thought Leader Revolution uh, listenership. And many of them may not know who you are, although our longtime listeners will. Why don't you tell them your backstory as a way for them to get to know you and what we're going to talk about? Thank you, Nikki. And these days, I'm developing uh, real estate across North America in a number of different ge geographic locations. That's not where I started. I started my career in the microprocessor industry. Started out as a microprocessor designer, and about 2009, 2010, took a left turn in my career. At that point, I was traveling back and forth to Tokyo every two weeks, building a new cellular network with the number four carrier in Japan called Wilcom. And it was brutal uh, taking that 13-hour flight and the 12 hours of time zone difference. Uh, it was punishing on the body. It was the wrong thing for me. It was the wrong thing for my family. And so at that point, decided to take a left turn in my, turn in my career and move into the world of real estate investing and real estate development on a full-time basis. So that was 2009. A decade later, uh, we're building all kinds of different projects. We've got a hospitality project that we're building here in Ottawa, Canada. We're not building it yet. We're going through the entitlement process and the design process. We've got assisted living projects we're building in the United States, uh, built a ton of different apartment buildings, 
And that's what I focus on. And a part of the thought leadership platform that you talked about, it has a number of facets to it. It's writing of books, it's the podcast, it's YouTube videos, it's a social media presence, it's talking at live events. All of these things work hand in hand with each other. 100% they do. 100% they do. So, Victor, what was the moment that had you say to yourself, you know what? I, I can't do this, this, you know, microprocessing high tech thing anymore. I need to start something else. And what was it that let you know that real estate investing was the place that you wanted to hang your hat and, and make the difference that you were born to make? There were a few things. At that time, I was actually interviewing for a company in Korea that was going to be doing vision systems for automotive. This is the thing that figures out what lane you're in and when you're veering off the road, all of that kind of stuff. It would have been a senior role with that company. And I came to the conclusion, well, wait a minute, I've seen this movie before. <laughs> it's different actors, but it's the same ending. Whether I'm flying to Japan or Korea, it's going to be the same. And I was looking around at the tech industry and in the tech industry at the time, especially in the world of hardware development, it required a lot of capital. You know, you need at least $40, $50 million to design a new chip and bring that to market. And you're saying to investors, maybe in four years, I'll get you your money back. And maybe by year five or year six, I'll make a profit. Are you lining up for that investment? I mean, it's really not a great value proposition. And yet that's the reality of that industry. So I started casting my eye further about and saying, well, what else can I do? Where where can there be access to historical background in it in the sense that my mother was the second woman in history to graduate in architecture from Cornell University. And so she did a lot of landmark projects in New York City and Manhattan. And so that's, if I hadn't gone into electrical engineering, that would have been my number two choice. And I saw the opportunity to do something in the realm of development that would be creative, that would leverage that 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 hidden desire that I had that hadn't really been uh, exercised. And uh, so that that was the, the the driver. I didn't know your mother was the second woman in history to graduate from architecture from Cornell University. How cool is that? Oh, it's, it's super cool. She, for those of your listeners that have been to New York City. I'll mention a couple of the landmark properties. Uh, most of you have probably been to Grand Central Station on 42nd Street and Park Avenue. And immediately behind Grand Central Station, right on top of it, on Park Avenue and 43rd Street, between Grand Central Station and the Helmsley Building, is a building called the MetLife Building. It blocks the view of uh, Park Avenue. It used to be called the Pan Am Building. They used to have a helicopter service uh, right to the rooftop of the Pan Am building from JFK Airport. They they uh, got rid of that when a helicopter crashed into the building. But uh, my mother was self-taught as a civil engineer, actually. Uh, she challenged the exam, and she was responsible for the structural engineering and the mechanical damping of the Pan Am building to isolate it from the vibration of the trains from Grand Central Station down below. All done in the late 1940s, early 1950s with a slide roll. Uh, and that building is still standing today. It's pretty remarkable. That's incredible, man. Victor, you've got quite the history in your background. You know, your your mom's uh, pioneering work inside the real estate space in uh, New York City is, is mind-blowing. And how did this impact your, your decision to want to get into real estate yourself? 
Yeah, it's one of these things that I always knew growing up. Uh, I remember going to a wedding actually at uh, the Pierre Hotel in, in, on Fifth Avenue and 60th Street. Again, if you've been to New York, most people know of the Plaza Hotel. It's a bit more famous right on Central Park South, 59th Street and Fifth Avenue. But diagonally across is the Pierre. It's a little bit more exclusive. It's a little bit smaller. It's where all the Saudi princes have their private apartments. And uh, uh, my mother designed the ballroom extension of that hotel. Uh, extraordinary uh, space to, to hold events. Um, these little Romeo and Juliet uh, mezzanine balconies in the middle of the ballroom. It's just an exquisite old world feel to this ballroom, uh, to the, well, the entire extension of the hotel, which didn't really have event space until, until she designed, designed that. So, so that's pretty neat to go back there, whether it's to on a Saturday afternoon or just to, to admire the work that she did. I still go back there and take pictures whenever I have a chance. I love it, man. That's fantastic. Wow. That's pretty cool. I want to have to make sure I visit the Pierre Hotel and, and go see that ballroom extension that you're talking about and, and, and tell people, hey, my, my buddy's mom designed this place back in the 40s and the 50s. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. It is cool. That's awesome. Okay, so you've got this phenomenal uh, history. Uh, there's a tradition inside your family of love for real estate and love for creating uh, beautiful properties that really help people achieve some very powerful goals, both in terms of the users of the space, but obviously also in terms of the owners who are taking the risk and making the investment to make that space happen. So this really brought you to a place where you wanted to do this for yourself. And you had this epiphany while you were working in the tech space going, I don't want to be in the tech space anymore. I want to go back to my roots, the roots of my family, get involved in real estate. So you did that. What happened next? Of course, the downturn in real estate was happening in full force in the United States at that point in time. Uh, so you could, at that point, buy property properties for well below construction cost, sometimes a third to a half a construction Of course, it made no sense to build at that time because you could buy things for so much cheaper. So we started redeveloping properties, properties that were distressed because that's the only thing that made, that made sense. But fast forward a couple of years and we started to get into development because we had about four or five years of essentially no new construction in the country and a lot of pent up demand. So we were buying distressed properties. Uh, we were demolishing the interior of those buildings, keeping the stone, the historic facades, putting a brand new building on the inside with all the modern amenities, just using the exterior shell as the framework. And then the step from there to pure ground up construction, mostly in an infill context, meaning within an urban center, where all the utilities are at the lot line was a fairly small step to go from from those major major rehabs to new construction, and then from there was a relatively small step to go through entitlements and zoning and get better height restrictions and all of that sort of thing, and then from there going to greenfield development where you had to build out the entire infrastructure, uh, including everything from your soil stability to bringing the utilities to the property uh, was a small step. So, it, you know, with each generation of projects. We were taking on more and more uh, where today uh, we're very comfortable taking on fairly substantial projects going right through the entitlement process and taking them from concept to uh, to complete a product. And what's nice about that, you know, today the environment is such where there's a lot of money sitting on the sidelines, even 
with everything that's happening in the world right now with the coronavirus outbreak, there's a lot of economic uncertainty. There's still a lot of money on the sidelines specifically looking for yield. And uh, the downturn in the stock market has only exacerbated that. Real estate markets are great for, for that. So still a lot of money chasing properties. And if you have a multifamily complex, an existing complex come on the market, the, these things end up being auctions. You get multiple bids all the time. And so they're being overpriced. They're selling at too, at too high a price because there's too much competition for too few properties. And in the world of development, you're not competing with anyone because no one's competing for the concept that's in your own head. So you can buy property at a reasonable price. You can develop usually for a quarter to a third less than things are selling for in the open market, which creates a significant amount of value. So it's clear, Victor, that you understand the world of real estate and real estate investing, and you know how to, how to create great returns for yourself and for people who invest with you. That's clear. But you really became a thought leader in this space. You went from being somebody who was a, a, a developer who was pretty successful, doing really well, to being known as the go-to guy when it came to raising capital, when it came to understanding the real estate space. You wrote the book on raising capital called Magnetic Capital, and you launched a podcast, the Real Estate Espresso podcast. And as a result of taking these and a number of other steps, you're somebody who's in demand. You're sought after, right? Talk a bit about that whole process and what thought leadership has meant to you and how it's allowed you to take this passion that you have in your heart to the highest level of success that it possibly can get to. We'll start with the book because you actually had a hand in that. Uh, I've been a guest on various radio shows and podcasts for years now, and that's been a good experience. It's given me exposure in the marketplace. I'm part of the executive of the Auto Real Estate Investors Organization with about 400 members. And even though at that time we weren't developing a lot in the auto market, it was still very good exposure to be part of the executive. And I was working on setting up an interview uh, with a very notable attorney in New York City on the Real Estate Guys radio show. We all flew into New York and held this interview at this man's house. And the day after, uh, recorded an interview with myself, again, with the Real Estate Guys radio show. We have a huge following. They have listeners in 192 countries. And you listened to uh, a preview of that interview and and you told me at that time, you said, well, Victor, you've got a book in that interview. And I said, yeah, maybe, but I'm busy working on another book. And you said, no, 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 you got to go write this one. And so I went home that night and outlined 13 chapters and said, hmm, yeah, Nikki's kind of right. And so that was the <laughs> genesis of the book Magnetic Capital. Uh, you had a very direct hand in being the catalyst for for that book coming into existence. And uh, it, it's been well received by the marketplace. It really filled a gap in the market where it's written from the perspective of someone who's a practitioner. Most of the books on raising capital tend to be fairly academic. And this one is written from the perspective of someone who's doing a day in, day out. And so it's met with a lot of uh, acceptance from, from people in the marketplace and it's done well. And it's given me exposure through other different podcasts and radio shows as well. And it's been helpful 
Uh, it's you know established me as an authority in the space, which has been great. The, the step from there to the podcast was something that I was avoiding for a long time because I was frankly scared of the amount of effort that it represented and the commitment that it would represent to put out a piece of content on a regular heartbeat. And I got to know John Lee Dumas from Entrepreneurs on Fire, was a guest on his show. You were a guest on his show. He's a great guy. Uh, a number of friends of ours uh, have been a guest on that show. And, and that's one of the premier business podcasts out there. What inspired me about what John Lee Dumas is doing is the fact that he had a daily show. Now, he, after five years of doing a daily show seven days a week, he's taken it back to a couple of shows a week. But still, he proved that it was something that could be done. And uh, so I got this idea in my head of doing a daily show seven days a week because I had a proof point that it could be done with the right systems and processes, just like Roger Bannister, who broke the four-minute mile. Nobody could do it until there was a proof point. And so uh, this was that proof point for me. Yeah, that's incredible. I mean, I, re I remember that conversation we had about your book. I remember you sending me that clip from the interview. And it, it was clear as day to me that you had something special that the marketplace needed. It was unique. And it needed to be out there in the form of a book. And the moment you got the book out there, Victor, you went from, you know, being like a guest on podcasts and TV shows and radio shows to being like incredibly in demand. I remember that the number of invitations you were getting was a little bit overwhelming for you at one point, right? In a good way. And yeah. when, when you when you were able to be on all of these shows and to spread your message, people would come and get your book and you were able to not only get people to buy your book, but there would be people who'd come to you and go, hey, Victor, can I invest with you? Hey, Victor, would you mentor me? And, you know, in the past you had to do a lot of that legwork yourself. But now there was a situation where people were actually seeking you out for the right to do business with you. And that was a wonderful thing. That's absolutely true. When I started out, I was at one point marketing myself somewhat actively as a consultant. And frankly, I would take any client that would, that would pay me whether it was an ideal fit or not. And uh, even if it was at a low hourly rate, if you will. And today, fast forward to today, I don't advertise myself at all as a consultant. You know, I'm not marketing myself in that way at all. And I have a handful of consulting clients and without exception, every single one of them have approached me without me advertising in any way whatsoever. And that's a better position to be in because now you can pick and choose who are the right clients for you. There are out, people out there in the space that are, you know, looking for uh, rookie investors as clients. And I could certainly help them. That's not the perfect use of me. I, I'm better at working with the investor who has 50 or 100 units in their portfolio and they want to get five to 500 or 1,000 that I can help with. That That's where I can bring something unique to the table. I'm trying to remember who was, uh, who said, if you want better income, you've got to have better clients. And and I think that's absolutely true. I think Mark von Muser said that to us. I don't know if he was the first person to say that, but I know for sure he said that to us in one of the sessions that we had with him. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So that's powerful. So thought leadership 
A, allows you to be better positioned. B, allows you to be able to pick and choose the clients you work with. C, it allows you to grow yourself in terms of the impact that you have and the difference that you get to make. So what about the whole process of the way you you have been using thought leadership? Is it that you really want our listener to know? Let's focus in on the podcast for a moment because it's an area that's getting a lot lot of attention these days for a variety of different reasons. Podcasting is an area of growth in the industry. Today, there's about 85 million listeners across the United States that listen to podcasts. Uh, So it's a growing percentage of the total population. Those that do subscribe to six shows and listen to five because that's all they have time for. Most of the shows are weekly. And... My question when I was designing the Real Estate Espresso podcast was, well, if someone's going to listen to my show and it's already a somewhat saturated airspace, why are they going to listen to me and who am I going to displace? Am I going to kick out the real estate guys who've been doing their show for 23 years? Am I going to kick out Oprah Winfrey? Uh, You know, am I going to kick out Tim Ferriss? Uh, Like, you know, I have to be realistic about this. You know, who am I going to displace? So the question became, how can I design a show that competes with either without competing or it's got to be good enough that it can actually displace one of those really well-established shows? And I came up with a concept that married together ideas from a couple of other thought leaders in the, in the industry. One person I have a tremendous amount of respect for as a marketer and as a thought leader is Seth Godin. He's amazing. I love many of your guy. listeners will know of him. He's wonderful. Uh, I think he's even been a guest on your show, correct? He, he has. He has. Yeah. And he, I, I love him. He has a daily blog that he's been running for years now. And it comes out uh, on a very simple technology base. Uh, you can get it uh, by email. Now, he breaks all the rules of blogging. Uh, if you look at some of the experts in blogging, like Michael Hyatt, who uh, grew his listener or his base from from nothing to about 7 million followers over a five-year period, and then subsequently wrote a book on it, you know, he'll tell you that you've got to have 450 words and it's got to be a certain keyword density for, you know, search engine optimization, all this other stuff. And Seth Godin says, no, it's just got to be really simple. You got to get one idea across every day. And if that takes half a page, it's half a page. If it's three sentences, it's three sentences. But he gets one idea across because you're not going to remember six anyway. And he's built a huge loyal list, uh, following both through the blog and now with his podcast. The idea is to just get one idea across. So I adopted that idea, that principle. And then the second thought that went into the design of the show was to do a daily show seven days a week, but do it as a short form podcast, five minutes. So the weekday show is just me, five minutes, get one idea across. And then the weekend edition are interviews with notable people from the world of business, entrepreneurship, real estate investing. And that mixes up the content a little bit, uh, makes it a little bit more interesting than just listening to Victor. And the feedback that I'm getting from my listeners is that they will now often listen to my show first ahead of some of the more established shows because they know they can commit to five minutes. They don't know that they can commit to 30 minutes or an hour. So it's kind of put me at the front of a number of people's playlist uh, simply because I chose the right format. So it seems to be working and the listenership is growing on a daily basis. Uh, now, uh, just broke 600,000 downloads so far uh, on the podcast, which I think is decent progress. And huge, I'm just man. focused on producing, you know, quality content every day. 
you know, Victor, what you've done is incredible. You've got a format that is saturated, but you found a way to get people to go, wow, I like the way this guy does it. So they're, they're willing to listen and you, you're obviously giving them good content because that's why they continue to listen and they, they have put you ahead of some of these better established podcasts. You've got 600,000 downloads. And as a result of this, your positioning as a thought leader in your space, I think is right up there with some of the biggest names in the world of real estate investing. And that's a wonderful thing. Kudos for making that happen, my friend. Well, thank you. Thank you. And the, you know, part of growing the listener base is also to engage with your listeners. So uh, I have certain episodes that we call AMA episodes. That is, ask me anything. And I actively solicit for uh, listeners to send me questions. And usually once or sometimes even twice a week, an episode will be dedicated to answering a listener question. Uh, we do things that are what are in the uh, media industry are called tie-ins. So, for example, if the Federal Reserve drops interest rates by half a point, as they did a few weeks ago, then you do an episode on that and say, what does that mean? Uh, if uh, there's something that listeners need to know about in terms of preparing for the next wave of, of what's happening in the market, you know, you do a tie-in with that as well. So often there's a mix between evergreen content that is timeless and things that are timely and topical. You can't comment on something the Federal Reserve did three weeks ago. It's not, it's not timely anymore. 100%. But, 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 you know, one of the things that's on everybody's minds these days, Victor, is what's the impact of the COVID-19 or coronavirus on uh, the economy, on the real estate market, on the stock market? And, you know, since you are a thought leader in the space, I thought I'd ask you that question because I'm curious. I want to know what your thoughts are. A lot of people have a very hard time thinking about exponential math. Uh, we tend to think linearly. And, you know, you might be looking at uh, the reports in the news and saying, well, we only have four cases or six cases in the community. You know, there's a million people in the Toronto area or there's six million people in the Toronto area. The chance of me getting it are minuscule. I'm good. A lot of people tend to go through that kind of mental math. And what they fail to recognize is if you look at where there's community level spread in other communities, it went from 1 to 2 to 4 to 8 to 16 to 32. And it's not very long before you're into the thousands or tens of thousands as we've seen in Italy and growing. And this is the problem with exponential math. It changes very quickly. It becomes that hockey stick where you go from very small numbers to very large numbers in a heartbeat in a matter of days or weeks. This is where a lot of people struggle. This is not the flu. You know, the flu kills about one person in a thousand, usually people with compromised immune systems, usually the elderly, and it ends up being a complication of something that they have otherwise going on in their life and that's weakened their immune system. This is not the case. This is not the same as the flu. We're talking about case fatality rates that are 30 to 50 times what they are for, uh, for the flu. And in the case of Italy, as we've seen right now, we're seeing case fatality rates that are something in the range of one in three. Those are big numbers. This is not something we've seen before. And I think people need to take it seriously. It's going to have a tremendous impact. You've got three things you need to balance, uh, whether individually, as governments or as communities. We've got three things we've got to balance. Number one, 
preventing the spread of the disease because it's something to take very seriously is to prevent the spread of the disease, number one. Number two, to keep the economy running as smoothly as possible because if you shut down the economy and people can't get groceries and you have mass famine and anarchy and all the rest, then maybe the, the cure could be worse than the disease. So you got to balance the keeping the economy going. And then number three, you've got to protect the healthcare system to make sure that the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed because then you've got other serious conditions, your run-of-the-mill heart attack, stroke, cancer, infections, and all the rest that need to be dealt with. And if your healthcare system's overwhelmed, now those people aren't getting service that they need and you have perfectly treatable conditions that now are getting triaged uh, or simply not getting the service they need because it's overwhelmed. We've seen that in Italy right now that they are having to do triage at this point because their intensive care units are completely overwhelmed. So it's a, it's a t- tough balancing act. I don't envy the people in government. They've got tough decisions to make and the population need, need to take the community view as opposed to the individual view at this point in time, in my opinion. Okay, that's good advice. So a couple of questions in regard to that. So I've been looking into this myself. I've been on the CDC website. I've watched the press conference yesterday put on by President Trump and Vice President Pence and all the impressive people that they had there. I watched the whole thing to really try and understand exactly what the dangers for this thing are. And inside of like North America, it seems like a lot of things have been done correctly. So travel from affected countries has been curtailed, right? And the chance of as many people getting infected as quickly has gone down. So right now, Italy has 10,000 coronavirus cases, right? That's what I'm, that's what I'm understanding from what the stats are. There's 115,000 of them worldwide. This is far more serious than the flu, no question, but it also seems to be affecting people over the age of 40 a lot more than it's affecting people under the age of 40. They say that the infection rate if you're under 40 is less than it is for the flu, and then it spikes dramatically more than it does for the flu if you're over the age of 40. Uh, Those are things people should be aware of too. Don't you think there's also a danger of people overreacting and doing too much to shut things down at this point in time? I actually have a slightly different view, and this is just an example of how things are changing so rapidly, so dynamically. So the numbers that you you just quoted were from yesterday, and as of today, as we're recording this, we now have 2,300 new cases in Italy, another 196 deaths over and above yesterday, bringing the total death count to 827 in Italy, and they are testing very aggressively. Uh, They have over a 1,000 in serious and critical condition. They were overwhelmed when they only had 650 in serious and critical condition. Now we have almost double that number. So this is where we get into the hockey stick effect. Now in the United States, they've been very slow to test. And this is a huge issue because you can't have any cases if you're not testing. They were running all of the tests through the Center of Disease Control in Atlanta. And you're talking about tests that have a shelf life between six to nine hours, and you got to send them from Washington State on an airplane to Atlanta for testing. Uh, do you even have a viable sample by the time it gets there? It's not clear. And, and even now, the, the tests are being rationed. Uh, They don't have enough of them. There are material shortages in producing the tests. They only had the ability, like I said, to test in a small number of locations. And 
who was even going to pay for the test wasn't, hasn't been clear. Many insurance companies would say, we'll pay for it if it turns out positive, but if it turns out negative, you're going to get a bill for three grand. That discourages a lot of people from taking the test. Yeah, that's so crazy. I think there's a lot more there's a lot more cases out there in the United States than we know about. And if you want an example of countries that have done this really well, I would say South Korea, who have been very aggressive in their testing and in their isolation. They've done a very good job. Uh, Hong Kong has done a fantastic job. Taiwan's done a fantastic job. Singapore, uh, they've got their, their, the spread of the disease under control. The number of cases that are opening up are still growing, but a much, much slower rate. In fact, I would even say China's done a very good job. Uh, and they've had the biggest outbreak of all. And well, uh, here in, in China, the West, right? in the, it started in China. It started in China. So it's uh, it, it, it's something to contend with. Uh, certainly anything travel related, those industries are, are being decimated right now. Anything in travel and hospitality and the ripple effect through the rest of the economy, I think is going to be significant. Yeah, I, I, I think that it's important to understand that. And, you know, especially if you're in business in the hospitality field or if you're in the kind of business you and I are in, which is, you know, putting on events uh, as well as going out and speaking at events. You and I were going to be speaking at an event in May in Calgary that just got pushed off to September again because of the coronavirus, right? Correct. So definitely people need to, oh, there have been to be aware. Yeah, there have been massive events that have been canceled. The Mobile World Congress in Barcelona, which attracts about 100,000 people every year in February. I, I've been to that several times myself. It's an amazing conference. was canceled two weeks out. And quite frankly, that's the, the impact to the local economy in Barcelona was estimated at $496 million. From that this alone? This is huge. Yeah, Just my, from that one conference. My son plays for the Barcelona soccer a team affiliate here in Toronto. And there's a World Cup that was supposed to be starting on April the 2nd. And that just got canceled. We just got the email yesterday. So yeah. my son's disappointed. And like he looked at me and he said, Dad, nobody my age is getting the coronavirus. He's been reading up everything too. Why are they canceling this? I say, son, because you deal with people that are older than you and they're scared. <laughs> You know, but um, yeah, it's definitely something that I think um, you're making some good points. We definitely need to be vigilant. We definitely need to not uh, needlessly expose ourselves. But I also think it's important that we uh, don't uh, we don't overreact either. It's it's like shutting everything in North America uh, down right now. Give me a right first-hand example. Yeah, because as I'm reporting this, I'm in Ottawa. I'm in Ottawa here and. We have, uh, in my wife's practice, uh, she has a staff member who was traveling in Spain, uh, came back from Spain a little over a week ago, by the weekend was sick, went into emergency to get tested. She was in a single room with about 16 other people getting tested at the same time. And her observation was that the staff there were already showing signs of being overwhelmed. They had over 200 tests run that day wow. in uh, just for the COVID-19. And here's the thing. Ottawa doesn't have a single case yet. That's incredible. And they're already <laughs> showing signs of being overwhelmed, right? So this, this is you know, what I'm talking about, making sure that the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. This is exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, I've talked with my family in, in Italy, uh, in Milan. Uh, response times for ambulances have gone from the average of eight minutes, which is a respectable time period, to well over an hour for an ambulance in Italy right now. If you had a heart attack, you're dead. That's, not That's a big work. deal. Yeah. 
Yeah, so th it, it's a real thing, and uh, there's no question you got to take the proper precautions, and there's a lot that's being done on the side of the government to let people know what to do and what to avoid doing. But I also think it's important that people don't panic unnecessarily. I mean, this this case of there, there are people that have been going into Costco, like a swarm, and buying everything in sight in terms of toilet paper and things like that. And, uh, you know, be cautious, but... Don't be crazy about it. Don't don't let your fear overwhelm your good common sense. There's a lot of good good advice out there on on how to handle this, and I think that advice should be taken. But I'm not a fan right now of shutting everything down, especially not not in in Toronto, not in Canada. But what you're saying makes sense. It's good advice. My guidance, yeah, my guidance on this one is be prepared, but don't hoard. So, for example. We went out and, and found uh, two liters of hand sanitizer, which will last us a couple of months. We have probably a 60 days worth of toilet paper, 60 days worth of food. We you know cases of folks that have gone out there and bought six months of supplies. That's that's a little bit over the top. I think there's a real possibility that in a lockdown situation, you might need to be sequestered at home, not because you have it, but because the community needs people not to be out there and interacting, uh, you might be sequestered for a period of time. And so I think it's smart to be prepared, but don't go out and hoard. Yeah, 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 yeah. No question. Well said. Okay, so as business people, what are some things that we can do in this situation to make sure the impact on our businesses are minimal? There's a lot of things that you can do. For example, I mean, one of the things that we have today that we didn't have quite as readily back in 2003 when SARS first came out and you know, to a lesser extent in 2009 when uh, the H1N1 virus came around. By the way, uh, I did catch H1N1 in Japan in 2009. Wow. Uh, I did so not I know exact, that. That's <laughs> like, yeah. So liberal use of video conference, it's something that I use regularly in my business today. Uh, my wife, who's a clinical therapist, who sees clients live face-to-face -face, day in, day out, is running her appointments this week by video conference. Not as good, not as effective, but maybe the right thing to do under the circumstances. We've got an event coming up in about a month and a half, and there's a chance we may do it virtually or find some way of doing it virtually at this stage as well. Let's see what happens. But that's important. That's good. We don't need to stop doing business. We just need to find other ways of doing business that don't necessarily involve people being face-to-face -face at this point in time, at least until this is under control in a bigger, more powerful way. The thing to remember about exponential math is that when it turns, it turns quickly. And so one of the things that I've done is I've actually constructed a mathematical model for the spread of the disease, looking at the incubation period, looking at the, the infectivity rates and so on. And unless we can be effective at curtailing the spread of the disease and minimizing human contact, if we just let it run wild through the community – without any checks and balances, we could see the population of the planet overrun in under 90 days. And and that's the power of an of exponential math. So we, it's, it's something where we're seeing big numbers out of Italy. Here in North America, we're only a few weeks behind what's happening in Italy. And and you can see it very clearly in the numbers. You can, you can curve fit the graph almost perfectly. And we're seeing the exact same things that are, have happened in other countries. 
Well, I'm uh, listening to you and I'm thinking, you know what? It's a smart idea to do certain things differently. I, I hope to God that you're wrong in this case, that we don't hit those kinds of numbers here in North America. I'd love to be wrong. Believe me, I, I don't want to be right on <laughs> you this one. You don't want to be but, right on this one. Yeah, you know, I get I'm, it. Yeah, yeah and it's, I've got it's, no ego around this at all. No, right? I know you don't, Victor. You're, you're, one, you're one of the men who really doesn't come from ego and a lot of what you do, and it's one of the things I respect about you. And on top of that, though, I think it was smart at, uh, at, at the, in the early days for – President Trump and the authorities here in Canada to uh, clamp down on travel from the Far East and in particular from China and people in Wuhan. Italy, unfortunately, didn't do that right away, nor did Iran. You know, I'm originally from Iran. And there were flights coming from Wuhan province into Italy, into Tehran, after the virus had been identified, after the location had been identified, those governments initially did nothing to clamp down on that travel. And I think that really hurt both of those countries in a big way. But here's the other, other issue. Even when they shut down flights to China, people said, oh, wait a minute, I can fly to Thailand. And from Thailand, I can fly to the United States. And so that was a big gaping hole that was left open for weeks before it was recognized. So we had a lot of cases coming into North America via Thailand, and nobody knew until uh, they had a, a view of that retrospectively. Wow. Well, uh, on that powerful note, I'm, I'm about to go away myself to the Dominican Republic with my son, <laughs> and uh, we're planning on having a good time. And part of the reading that I've done says that the virus can't survive in very high humid temperatures. I don't know if that's exactly accurate. I haven't seen that from a government website, but there has been other news outlets that have talked about that. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to avoid the virus on this trip. Yeah, well, good good luck, uh, safe travels, and uh, Thank you. look forward to catching up in person when you're back. <laughs> 100%, my friend, 100%. Okay, so uh, Victor, we like to end off each and every one of our episodes by asking you as our guest expert to share your top three expert action steps that you recommend our listener take on to enhance their life, enhance their business. What say you? When we talk about thought leadership, the environment today, nobody wants to be sold. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of fatigue of people hawking stuff at them. And I mean, nobody wants that kind of interruption marketing. What they are willing to do is they are willing to be educated. So in my view, there's two forms of marketing that work. Uh, number one is educational marketing. Number two, this one has to be used very selectively. And that's what I call buzz marketing, where you show a little bit of excitement about what you're doing. But if you do too much to that, it becomes this kind of narcissistic Instagram, look at me sort of thing. And that doesn't work either. It's got to be that right balance point. Uh, those are the two forms of marketing that I think work in today's environment. And this is where books, podcasts, seminars, all the different things that we talk about in thought leadership come into play. And that's where you, that's where you should be making surgical investments in building your brand, building your network, building your tribe. I love it, man. That's powerful stuff. That's powerful stuff. So, Victor, if folks want to listen to your podcast, what's the best way for them to do that? We're on over 20 different platforms. So wherever you are looking for uh, a podcast, wherever you li normally listen to podcasts, you'll find the Real Estate Espresso podcast. It's spelled real estate, just like the term real estate. Espresso is like the Italian coffee, spelled E-S-P-R-E-S-S-O. And you'll be sure to find it on virtually any of the different podcasting platforms. 
Yeah, it's a fantastic podcast. I've had the privilege of being a guest on Victor's show uh, before. I've listened to several of his episodes. In fact, you did something really cool, Victor. When you were at our uh, at our last live event in Toronto, you recorded a podcast on stage, and I thought that was the coolest thing. So we actually got to see you record the podcast. We got to hear what you had to do. Really, really cool stuff. Listen, I highly recommend that you uh, subscribe to Victor's podcast. You listen to his daily dose of wisdom and the guests that he brings in on his longer weekend shows are fantastic. You know, he's had some incredible people on, including Robert Kiyosaki, including yours truly. And you will really enjoy the wisdom that's being shared with you on those shows. So make sure that you go to the Real Estate Espresso podcast and subscribe to it on whatever platforms you listen to podcasts. You have a website for the show as well, Victor? Yes. The best way to get in touch with me directly is at my website at victorjm.com. That's victorjm.com. They can get the podcast from there. Our mastermind, uh, my book, Magnetic Cap, everything is accessible from there. And if they want to message me directly, they can do so through the website as well. Awesome. So we're going to make sure we put all that information in the show notes. Definitely pick up a copy of Victor's book. I have Victor's book. It's a fantastic book. In fact, don't just pick up a copy, but pick up a few copies. Pick up five copies. Give some to the people you care about the most. Give some to your best clients. It's a brilliant book. It's more than about just raising capital for real estate. It's really, in, in many ways, Victor, dare I say it, it's a bit of a spiritual book. It's a book about getting in touch with that part of yourself that allows you to be the best version of yourself. And, and it teaches you some really cool things about how to use that to magnetically attract capital to yourself. Wouldn't you agree with me, Victor? It's written from, absolutely, it's written from the perspective of raising capital for it doesn't matter what. It doesn't, it's not real estate. It could be for a technology venture. Sure, it could be for philanthropy. The, the mechanics are virtually the same and the psychology of raising capital is virtually the same. And when you understand that, you can apply that. It really unlocks the keys to the kingdom. You can apply that in pretty much any domain. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. So, listener, make sure you do that. All that information is going to be in the show notes. Now, in listening to this, you may be thinking to yourself, wow, Victor is amazing. I love this guy. And that is a good reaction for you to have because Victor is amazing and I love this guy myself. And you might be thinking to yourself, you know, can I be the best version of myself like Victor has been? Is it possible for me? And that's a question that I hear all the time from people that I speak to, people that respond to the podcast. And the answer to that question is, yes, of course you can. And the best way for you to really believe that is for you to be not just part of the listenership to this community, but also utilizing some of the great resources that we offer in this community to help you do that. One of the resources we have is there's this fabulous webinar masterclass that's on my website, ecircleacademy.com. It's smack dab in the middle of the homepage. You click on a button that says watch free masterclass. This is about an hour long course that will provide you with a blueprint on how to take all that brilliant expertise that you've spent a lifetime acquiring and turn that into actual real thought leadership the way that Victor has. And I highly recommend that you watch this masterclass. A, it's free. B, it'll help you put together a powerful blueprint and you can just go listen to this masterclass, bring a notebook with you, take detailed, detailed notes. And remember, as you're doing this, think about 
how you can serve the people that you really want to serve, the people that your expertise can make the biggest difference for, and start to share your thoughts in a heart-driven way, in a heart-leadership way, and you'll create for yourself a powerful blueprint to take you and your expertise forward into the marketplace so you get to make the difference you were born to make, you get to have a bigger impact on people, and you get to do what you were put on this earth to do, which is to share love, you know, because at the end of the day, what we do really makes a difference when we come from our heart, when we come from love. And that's that's what I highly advise you to do. Victor, thank you so much for being on the show, my friend. It's been an honor to have you on. You're an incredible guest. Well, thank you. Thank you, Nikki. Great to connect with you again. And for the listeners at home, definitely reach out to me at victorjm.com and be happy to get in touch with you, answer any questions you might have. 100%. And we'll have that information in the show notes so they can definitely do that. And my friend... Once again, thank you. That wraps up another incredible episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, the one and only Victor Minaj, go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com. Go to the show notes. Go subscribe to his podcast. Pick up a copy or several copies of his book. Go to his website, victorjm.com, and make sure that you peruse that website in a lot of detail and you find all the wonderful ways that you can take advantage of the incredible resources that he has. And hey, he's offered to allow you to get in touch with him. I can tell you this, this guy is an in-demand guy. So if he's saying you can get in touch with him, take advantage of that and make sure that you ask any questions you want to ask him and get those answered for yourself. Until next time, goodbye.